Our scripture reading this morning is Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and f- to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? So the sea grew more, tem- uh, more and more tempestuous, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Jonah, we are entering into uh, about a, a, a pretty short four-week series on Jonah. And as we move from um, digging into the story of God broadly in our storied series and how we are a storied uh, people, we move to a very particular story and one that um, quite... Um, uh, vividly exemplifies God's story, butting up against our own story and the stories that we know about ourselves, the stories that we have lived out of, those that we have been told. God's story butting up against perhaps our prejudices, what our hopes and dreams and desires, maybe even the idols that we carry closely to ourselves. Has anyone read Jonah? What does anyone know about Jonah? You've read Jonah? Good, good. Most of us have read Jonah. That's good. It's a it's a pretty short one. So any any anything stand out about Jonah? 
Nineveh, yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing story in that regard, yeah. Thank you. Okay, yeah, I was like, I mean, <laughs> a massive whale. Uh, it doesn't say whale. It does say fish. You know, I read a book um, on fly fishing and uh, and tarpon particularly, and the guy kind of goes into some 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 detail of an argument, arguing that maybe Jonah was actually swallowed by a tarpon, which is can also be a massive fish as well. As whale? Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I did not plan that. Yeah, but we we know this story, particularly the jo- Jonah and the whale. A whale, likely the very a very big fish uh, that they would have identified back then. Um, it's an incredibly short story. Stands out in some pretty uh, particular details of the whale of Nineveh, of who Jonah is. Um, but it's also incredibly powerful. Just this short four-chapter book, we see um, just some amazing satire happen, some amazing allegory, some wonder if this is really almost a myth and some inventive narrative that um, the ancient uh, or that the Hebrews were trying to, you know, tell um, a different kind of a story. Uh, but it it's put into the prophetic literature both in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Bible as well. But it has a twist. Jonah we know very little about. He's only really mentioned one other time in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 14. He was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam, who was a, the second, who was a pretty horrible king himself in the northern kingdom. At one point, the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom being Israel, the southern being Judah. And Israel was um, fell into a pretty selfish, pretty materialistic um, uh, reign of kings and with them as a nation as well. And really the only prophecy that we have of Jonah uh, saying to King Jeroboam was that he was doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's very little that we know about him. But he is a prophet with a twist as well. Most prophets did uh, prophesy to the kings, to the people of Israel and Judah to try to have them heed God's word. But he didn't focus on Israel. He was actually focused on a whole another nation. Usually in the prophecy, in prophets' uh, lives, they would prophesy that God would bring punishment on them by bringing other nations to exile them, to punish them. But here we see Jonah going to another nation to prophesy against them. Jonah, the word itself means dove, and his name being the son of Amittai, means son of my truth. Jonah is sent out like a dove, being a sign of life, being sent out from God's people uh, to see what happens when the prophet is reluctant uh, and the non-Israelites are receptive to God's truth. Jonah, let me see if that sentence makes sense. Jonah is a story about a dove, a sign of life, being sent out from God's people 
and a story about what happens when the prophet is reluctant to share that, but the non-Israelites are receptive to God's truth. It paints a picture of a people who have forgotten their call to be a light to the nations, to welcome strangers and sojourners in their life, to, be, to live it in worship of the Yahweh God, the personal God in whom they find their salvation, and to overcome their own prejudices. Jonah is a book that shakes up their theological world and ours as well. Jonah is a book about a reluctant prophet, someone who does not want to go, who does not want to heed the word of God given to him, even though it's his job to speak the word of God to others. But Jonah is a book about the power of the word of God. We see someone barely speaking at all to do his job as a prophet, and yet we see the power of God changing lives over and over and over again, quite simply and quite powerfully. Jonah is a book about God's mercy. God's mercy both for the reluctant prophet and the repentant Gentiles, those who are outside of the people of God, receiving God's mercy, as well as those inside the people of God. Quite simply, Jonah is a book about God at work. And I feel like, as we look out upon our lives, we are constantly questioning whether or not God is at work. Is he doing anything around us? Is he using us? Does he want to use us? What if we don't want to be used by him? Will he still work? I think Jonah tells us, and this first chapter especially, tells us that God does work. God works particularly in three things. God works in our disaster. God works in spite of our coping mechanisms. And God works in our sacrifice. God works in our disaster, in spite of our coping mechanisms, and in our sacrifice. God works in our disaster. One of the challenges of preaching this book is just telling the story. So we're going to walk through the story this morning uh, to hear it afresh anew. It opens with action immediately. Now is the Hebrew it just brings you into it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It says, Arise, go, call out. Their evil is before me. There's no setting the scene here. It is like jump in and get going. Jonah, the prophet, is called to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. As Jeff said, just a massively evil city to go to. They destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel where Jonah is from. This is like calling a Jewish man to go and speak in Berlin in 1936. This is like sending a black man to go and speak up for rights, voting rights in Selma in 1965. This is like calling anyone to the south in the 60s to stand up for um, African-American peoples in that time. Selma happened uh, 50, I don't do math very well, 57 years ago um, on Tuesday. This is a disaster for Jonah. 
so he doesn't go. Instead, he goes to Joppa, which is on the shore. It's probably modern-day Tel Aviv. And he books a ship for the complete opposite direction to Tarshish, likely in the Spain area. Nineveh was the other direction, and um, Jonah said, I'm going that way, uh, away from where God is calling me to flee the presence of the Lord. The irony is just dripping in this passage. This disaster for Jonah is God's word coming to him. He knows God's word is powerful. He is a prophet. He knows God's character over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And Jonah says it in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 2. He says that when they mention the name of God, he says this, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is the disaster for Jonah, that God is slow to anger, that he is merciful, that he is abounding in steadfast love, that he relents from disaster. It is coming up and abutting, confronting Jonah with his own desires square in the face. When Jonah says he wants to flee from the presence of the Lord, he's saying quite literally in the Hebrew, he wants to flee from the Lord's face. He does not want to be face-to-face with the Lord. It was a disaster. I think we've all been through disasters in our lives. Sometimes we choose the disaster. Sometimes they choose us. Sometimes we give up something to be able to uh, embrace Um, maybe a better way. Sometimes we choose to speak out when we know it's going to be costly for us. Sometimes we choose to make a harder decision that we know is going to come and confront us and we're going to have to deal with it. Sometimes the disaster chooses us. Sometimes someone else's sin, someone else's choices come and confront us and cause us great pain and great harm. Sometimes something is taken away from us that we rely on in our life. I think there are two things that disaster confronts most uh, particularly and especially here in our Jonah passage. Disasters confront our need for control and our need for safety. These can often be idols in our lives, control and safety, believing that we have control over our own lives, that we can determine our own safety because oftentimes disasters are placed on us. Disasters whittle us down to the bare essentials of life. What disaster are you facing now? It could be really big. That would overwhelm anyone that is just life-altering. Or it could be a very small disaster, but it weighs heavily on you. It takes energy out of you. And someone might belittle it, but that doesn't mean it's little to you. Disaster is disaster. What is making you question your own safety and control in life? What do you have to give up to get through this disaster? I think Jonah reminds us that God is still at work in the disaster. God is still present. The irony of Jonah trying to flee the face of the Lord is that he can never get away from him. 
To get through disasters, though, we often reach out for our coping mechanisms. But God works in spite of them. God works in spite of our coping mechanisms. Jonah's first coping mechanism is to flee, to run. I'm going to get away from God. I'm going to board a ship in the complete opposite direction of where God has called me, and I'm going to go to Tarshish. Despite his desire not to go to Nineveh and prophesy to a non-Israelite audience, he gets on a ship full of Gentiles. Hello. Isn't it ironic? I feel like Alanis Morissette, she, she should have just let, redid the book on Jonah. Would have been a better song. Okay. Jonah brings his disaster with him. He carries his own baggage. He can't flee from the word of the Lord, from the face of God. So the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. And the ship threatens to break up. They hurl, the sailors hurl cargo into the sea later. In verse 13, it says they try to row back to shore. They just work harder. They're sailors. They should know how to weather the storm. Their coping mechanism is to fight. They fight against the sea, but the sea just fights back harder. I love this line. It just grew more and more tempestuous. Ah, what a great word, tempestuous. And as the sailors fight, what does Jonah do? He goes and takes a nap. He's <laughs> like, I'm out of here. I don't have time for this. Whatever. It will be, will be, right? He numbs himself pretty literally, taking a nap. Turns out our coping mechanisms haven't changed very much. We flight, we run, we avoid, we fight, we confront, we work harder, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we buckle down, we get focused, or we freeze we numb out, we self-medicate, we take a nap. Maybe that's self-care, oftentimes. Maybe not oftentimes, but in this case, it's freezing. What do you tend to do? Do you have a coping mechanism that you go to? Napping. Sorry to step on your toes. Yeah. You, so you're a fighter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Avoider. Flee, flight. I vacillate. Like, man, I can, I can, as a enneagram seven, if I can get that bingo, you know, square for y'all. Um, like, I, I can lose myself in uh, a myriad of hobbies. Or I can go take a nap and just numb out. Or, like, if you push me hard enough, I will start to fight. And I don't fight fair. Um, I don't fight well. Um, it gets me in more trouble. It's fighting for these those idols, though, right? It's fighting for the safety and control. It's fighting for the things that make us feel comfortable. See, when the, the coping mechanisms didn't work, the sailors became afraid. And they begin to cry out to their own gods. They would have been crying out to their personal gods of the wind and the sea. But this doesn't work either. When we try to cry out to the false gods or idols, that doesn't always work either. When we try to grasp for more control, it often has the complete opposite uh, reaction than what we are hoping for. When we try to hold on to safety, oftentimes our lives become less safe as well. Idols can be safety and control, but they can be anything that we make an ultimate thing. An idol is can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, 
but if we make it an ultimate thing, if we put it in the place of God to say, this is the thing that is going to save me, that is how we know it's become an idol. If we say we can't live without it, we know it's become an idol. But the amazing thing is that God works in spite of our coping mechanisms. The captain finds Jonah asleep and echoes exactly what God has said to Jonah at the very beginning after he rebukes him. What are you, what are you doing, sleeping here? Get up, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, really just digging into Jonah. You're not thinking about us. Maybe your God will, that we may not perish. Here you have a Gentile captain telling a Hebrew prophet to do his job, to get up, to speak, and with what ire, again, dripping with my natural language, sarcasm. I love what Nick, Nick and I were talking about this earlier this week, and he goes, Jonah is a story about Hebrews acting like Gentiles and Gentiles acting like Hebrews. I think so often we as the church look out with very much the same perspective, where we act like Gentiles. We act like people who are not a part of the people of God, whereas people, the people who are not a part of his kingdom act more like uh, those who are. So they cast lots. They determine blame. They interrogate, interrogate Jonah. Jonah identifies himself. I'm a Hebrew. All right, you got me. I'm a Hebrew who fears the Lord, the God of heavens who made the land and the sea. I mean, this just blows the sailors away. They would have had their own gods for each of these places, for heaven, for land and sea. Jonah says, I believe and worship the God who made all of these things. And I can't imagine them not being like, and you're taking a nap, dude? Like, get up. He hadn't cried out to his God, to this God, to save himself and them. So they ask him, what must we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And Jonah says, hurl me into the sea. Throw me overboard just like you did the cargo. I'm worthless. Hurl me into the sea. And in doing so, Jonah probably does the most uh, spectacular move of maybe the whole book. He offers himself as a sacrifice. Often the only way through the storms of life are to give ourselves over to them, to be tossed overboard and into the great mercy of God, which is just as tempestuous as the sea, a great mercy that rages around you until you give yourself over to it, that it presses in on you, that you begin to give all your things up just to get out of the storm instead of giving yourself fully to it. See, Jonah knew that there's only one way through this disaster, and that was to give himself over to God, the God who made the sea and the one who has caused its rage. Jonah has to sacrifice his control, his comfort, his prejudices, himself, all that he knows of his life to save both the ship and himself. Andy Crouch, a great um, thinker, says there's something about sacrifice that unlocks what this world needs. The story of redemption is built on sacrifice. There's something about sacrifice that unlocks what this world needs. Disaster creates 
sacrifice. If disaster confronts our idols of safety and control, then sacrifice is giving up our idols, giving up our lives, and making ourselves available to God to do way more than we could ever imagine. And he goes on and he talks about two different um, sacrifices that we can do, the routine and the radical. The routine is the everyday sacrifice. Maybe it's parenthood. Maybe it's taking on another job to make ends meet. Maybe it's you're giving up your comfort for your spouse's needs to let them get out of the house for um, an hour this week to get away from the kids, taking up the the um, taking on a new chore that you don't usually do to give respite to someone else. Or it's a radical one. It's a complete life circumstances overhaul. Perhaps it's taking blame for someone else could potentially ruin your job. Maybe it's moving to another city or another country to serve God. For me, it was uh, moving to St. Louis from Chicago. <laughs> um, I uh, did not want to leave Chicago uh, after seminary. I tried to stay there. Um, I wanted to live there. I wanted to do ministry there. Um, I had a great church family that I was a part of. Um, the problem was I didn't really have a job. Um, that was a challenge, um, and uh, there weren't really any churches hiring. It was 2008, 2009. There had been an um, a economic crash, and so people weren't retiring. And so when I went to St. Louis to visit the church that I would eventually intern, intern at, I knew that going there that weekend that I had to go. I had to follow God to go and move to St. Louis, which, like, that's an exile. It felt like an exile for me. But what I saw happen was God introduced me very quickly to a very beautiful woman that had character that was deep, who showed me, uh, again, a great love of a city um, and how we could serve God together. That, for me, was, was a radical sacrifice, but one in which God worked so mercifully and took it to redeem it and give life back. What is God calling you to sacrifice? This request of Jonah's to throw him over the board is like, I mean, you know, very very logically, uh, met with hesitancy by the sailors. They feared the Lord just as they had previously feared the sea. The Hebrew uh, is the same in those two phrases. And they also cried out for the Lord's mercy upon them. I'm sure as they're throwing Jonah overboard, let us not perish for this man's life. Don't lay his innocent blood upon us. And in doing so, they repent as well. They turn from their idols of work, of control, of safety, and hurl themselves on God's mercy, just what Jonah was afraid of, that other people would know of this great and merciful God as well. They, too, offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. In the disaster of God's word coming to Jonah, in spite of how hard he tried to avoid doing so, he sacrificed himself, and in doing so, shared the word of God with the sailors, and they worshiped the Lord. Just as Jonah prays in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. So, 
Um, I love this story. So I was sharing this with a friend of mine who's a pastor in Indiana. Uh, his name is Brandon. He said, you know, my call to ministry came in reading Jonah. I said, no, I don't. We've known each other for like 10 years, Brandon. No, I didn't know that. He goes, yeah. Um, Brandon uh, was set up. He had a pretty sweet life in Georgia, living on St. Simon's Island. He um, was a hospital administrator. His wife uh, has been very successful as well. And he was reading Jonah, and he just kept going like, dude, excuse me, you're a dumbass. Like, what, like, very clear God is calling you to go to Nineveh. Why don't you just go and do what God has called you to do? That was earlier in the week. Later in the week, he um, is yelling at his daughter Adeline from downstairs saying, I know you can hear me. Why aren't you responding? And the word of God came rushing in upon him. He said he just fell in a heap on the floor and began weeping. <laughs> he realized, I'm the dumbass. <laughs> he texted me later, um, or yesterday, uh, yesterday, and we talked on Friday. He said, um, also regarding Jonah, it occurred to me the night that I read it, it revealed two important things. One, I was Jonah. I was foolish for running away from God. Two, even in my foolishness, God was pursuing me. Point two reveals so much about his character. Slow to anger, abounding in hesed love, and, for my, and my sin. It's easy to think that Jonah was a fool for fleeing via the sea because he is the Lord of the sea. It's pretty dumb, to be honest. The real foolishness was running from God and his calling because God is good and his ways are good. One day, I'll remember that on the front end instead of marveling at it on the backside. There's a story about Jesus as well, falling asleep on a ship. And when he's awakened by his disciples, instead of saying, throw me overboard, he stands up and he rebukes his disciples. And then he rebukes the storm and the sea calms down. See, the Jesus story is God sending his word, literally, not his prophet, but his word, who didn't run away from us, but ran headlong into the disaster of the cross, who crushes all our coping mechanisms, who gives up all of his safety, all of his control, and who becomes our sacrifice for us, so that when we run away, we know that he is running after us. Even though the wind and the waves may be raging in your life, you can be assured that Jesus is on the boat with you. And he works in your disasters. He works in spite of your coping mechanisms. And he works because of his sacrifice for you. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you run after us that you run toward us and that you don't run away, that you are a merciful God, abounding in steadfast love, calling us to receive your mercy toward us. We pray that your peace would be upon us, 
that we would feel by the power of your spirit the, your presence with us no matter what big or little disaster and storm is going on in our life. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.